like for you to consider as we look at the progress of redemption in the book of Proverbs, the idea of triumph, the idea of triumph. And so it might not immediately come to mind, uh, the idea of triumph here, the word translated triumph in the Old Testament signifies great joy felt in the heart, expressed outwardly in word or deed. The word triumph is only used in the New Testament twice. First, for what Christ engaged to do for us, and secondly, for what Christ engaged to do in us. So triumph, we're thinking of triumph today. Again, when we look at the New Testament, we see that it, it applied to what Christ has done for us. And secondly, it applies to what Christ intends to do in us. Now, you might ask the question, what do the Proverbs have to do with triumph? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because what the Proverbs have to do with triumph is the Proverbs reveal to us what it is that God intends to do in us. Right? It is a display of what God's purposes and plans are for us to do. Yes, he, he does that in other places as well. But we see that certainly the Proverbs display for us what the Lord Jesus intends to do for us. And so I would like for you also to think about what it means to live by faith. What it means to live by faith. The conscience, the heart, and our affections are only purified by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Our whole warfare is carried on by faith. The giving up of yourself to reveal truth is an act of faith. We connect the moments of our lives to be lived in accordance with the Word of God by faith. And the extent to which our lives reflect the words and character of God is a certain measure of our faith. Our faith in God. To not only work for us, but to work in us. Now, I'd like for you to think about something Additionally, as we think about faith, because sometimes when we say we do things by faith, we may take to ourselves the impression that what we're talking about is substitutionary imputation, right? In other words, when we say that you are sanctified by faith, it may give one the impression that what we're talking about is simply receiving from Christ the same righteousness that justified you, right? And so when someone says, well, we, we take this by faith, it, it may give the impression that it doesn't involve any activity on your part, right? But, but nothing could be further from the truth. Again, when we look at Proverbs, we're looking at what God intends to do, not for us, but in us, in us. Right, And so that's going to involve, and you know, we, we talk about choices in the Christian life. Well, as God's people who embrace a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, we recognize that God chooses us. But we also see that the Proverbs reveal that there are yet many choices in life. And God shows us how to make wise choices that are in accordance with that which is holy, and that which commends the gospel. And so that is what the Proverbs certainly are about. 
The Proverbs are about what God intends to do in us, the redeemed. Committing significant portions of time and energy to gain understanding of who God is, what He has done for us and what He's doing in us, is an act of faith that will be ridiculed by the world and will also run counter to your own unredeemed flesh. Our minds are excuse factories of why we don't need to study the Scriptures now or why we should focus on some area of theoretical theology that is good merely to argue annoyingly with others or why we shouldn't invest ourselves in others now or why we shouldn't spend a few good minutes speaking with our children now. Hopefully we'll see in the Proverbs uh, a greater sense of urgency for that. We are sitting around a room that is filled with exercise equipment. (laughs) It's hard not to look at it. And the Apostle Paul has actually directed Pastor Timothy to this idea that physical exercise is of some value. Now, it is of some value for a number of reasons. It certainly is some value to maintain the strength that we need to carry the gospel. The old Puritans and those that were involved in the revival, the first great awakening in the United States, had a saying. They said, if you kill the horse, you can't deliver the gospel. Right? So these guys had a reputation for killing the horse. They worked themselves to death literally. And uh, it may be that they didn't consider the need to strengthen their bodies physically. So the proposition isn't that we make the gym a god, but the proposition, I'm persuaded, one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul spoke to Timothy about about the idea that uh, physical exercise is of some value is because it is very much illustrative of what it is to grow spiritually. We think about our progress. A number of you spend a little time at the gym. You spend a little time working out. You spend a little time trying to run faster or swim faster or jump higher or something like that. And what have you found? Well, you found that it takes a whole lot of work to make a little bit of progress. Now, this is one of the areas where our culture distinctly works against us. Because, you see, we're persuaded that we enjoy certain benefits simply because of who we are, right? Because of the color of our skin, for instance, or because of our nationality, because of which nation we came from, because of our sexual orientation. The Bible knows nothing of that. But the Bible affirms, right, that in order for us to grow spiritually, it involves, as John Bunyan said, the sweating work of the gospel, right? And so this is a... This is a now, it may seem to us that growing by grace in faith is incompatible with, as John Bunyan says, the sweating work of the gospel, But what hopefully we'll see in the Proverbs and have affirmed for us is that we can, in fact, triumph in that which God intends to do in us as we more fully consider the patterns, the habits that we see in the book of Proverbs here. Now, so a few other aspects of the book of Proverbs. For one, the Proverbs intermingle Christ 
and wisdom. I draw your attention to Proverbs 2, verses 10 and 11. And we see that wisdom is, is uh, frequently personified in the Proverbs. Now children, what it means to personify something, it means that we, we take an attribute, particularly this attribute of wisdom, and we give to it characteristics like a human. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 10, For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you. Now, wisdom, like words on a page, in that way, certainly can't do these things. But we're not talking about that kind of wisdom. We're talking about the wisdom of God. We're talking about Christ, right? And the things that Christ has and says for us and to us. Of course, you're also familiar with Proverbs chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, where the Bible says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Now, you need to know this is a Trinitarian passage. Okay, so Proverbs chapter 8 very much uh, is a Trinitarian passage. Uh, It implies that wisdom, personified of course in the Lord Jesus Christ, was present with the Father at the beginning, uncreated. He says, ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, where there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens. I was there. So we have here uh, the, the breathtaking personification of wisdom. We have here nothing less than the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, the Word of God. And what do we know about the Word of God, the spoken Word of God? What do we know about it? Occasionally I walk into a room and I say, let there be light. Nothing happens. I mean, I don't have any kind of gadgets or anything that might make that happen. But nonetheless, my spoken word has no power. Right? But the spoken word of God created the universe. Right? And it creates life in us. And this is what's referred to here in Proverbs chapter 8, the spoken word of God. Affirmed also, of course, in Hebrews chapter 1. The Reformation Study Bible has a a helpful understanding, really explanation of where the Proverbs shows up in the Hebrew Bible. So what we know is the Hebrew Bible is broken up into three parts. The first part is the law. And that would be the Pentateuch. Uh, And then the second part is the prophets. And those prophets are broken up into the former prophets and the latter prophets. And then the third part is the wisdom, uh, the the, uh, writings, excuse me, the writings. And what we understand, of course, is um, that the Proverbs are in the writings. We, We categorize them in terms of wisdom literature associated with Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. But nonetheless, what we see here in the Hebrew Bible is their location also gives us an idea of their purpose. 
a purpose that uh, I'm speaking to you right now about about triumphing and what it is that God intends to do in us, right? About this, that how God intends for us to live. And so we see, for instance, that uh, the former prophets <coughs> showed the failure. <clears throat> excuse me, the former prophets show the failure of the covenant people to experience this ideal of walking with the Lord in history. That's the former prophets. The latter prophets give the divine interpretation of this failure. And in the writings of which the book of Proverbs is included, show us how to live with the ideals set forth in the law, but not experienced in the prophets. And the Proverbs, the Proverbs presume redemption. They presume the redemptive work of Christ. So the Proverbs are not to us, nor were they ever intended to be to us, some sort of a legalistic process in which the Lord gives to us a methodology by which He will then, quid pro quo, give to us what it is that He's promised. But we do know that it is the means. It is the means by which God will keep His promises. Not unlike the promise that He gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. As we walk in this way... This is the process by which the Lord will keep His promises to you. The Proverbs work in the very same way. This is the way God works. He uses means, right? And we see that the Proverbs are a tremendous means by which He intends for us to grow. The wisdom literature in the Bible compares life to a journey. You ever been on a journey, children? Ever been on a journey? I mean, surely your dad's had you hiking up these trails before, right? You've been on a journey like that? Hopefully that was fun. I think it's fun. Sure, it's difficult, sweaty. Normally worth it just by what you can see, right? Being together, going through a hard thing, for instance. Not all hikes have to be hard. But nonetheless, so... The Proverbs present to us, the wisdom literature in general presents to us life in the form of a journey or a path that we follow. And what we see in the Bible is that there are two paths. There's the way of righteousness and the way of the wicked. Now, while wisdom literature doesn't have the same apparent force and the thrust of the commands that we see in the Bible, for instance, I'm going to use an example of Uh, The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, for instance. We understand the Proverbs have a different thrust when they speak of adultery, right? Because the Proverbs are written in the form of uh, teaching from a father to his children. And this is an important idea. Because what we see, for instance, the way the Apostle Paul describes himself as a spiritual father is he does this in terms of a loving father. And what we understand, God has made us as people, so that we uh, primarily receive the truths of God in the context that is presented in the Proverbs. It's how we bring them, it's how we take them in uh, to ourselves. The form of the Proverbs is the teaching of life skills from a father to his children. It assumes not only God's created order in the context of redemption, but also the structure of an affectionate relationship. And this structure is essential for the teaching of the skills of godly wisdom and the proclamation of the ways of God in the context of much of what is 
taught. We talked about triumph. I would also hope that you would remember another thing, and that is this concept of skill. Most of us um, might get perhaps a little more excited about the idea of skill than perhaps some other things. Because, you see, I'm persuaded that when we think about living a holy life, we don't place it in the category of learning a trade or a craft. There's no sense of necessity or urgency often when people think of the urgency of growing in holiness. Right? But you make a man hungry, needful to understand his craft to work his work, as it were, before kings, and you will see a man who desires the development of a skill, a skill that is valuable, a skill that is worthy and worthwhile. And this is what the Proverbs are about. And so it's very possible that we, again, have placed the pursuit of holiness, the triumph that God intends to accomplish in us, simply by taking to ourselves the truths of God's Word. It may be that we have shoved those to the margins of our life. The Bible reveals that you do that to your peril. And it isn't unlike shoving to the margins of your life the need for air, right? So the reality is, is when we don't have air, it becomes a very desperate situation. And oh to God that we would see the living truths of God received in the context of a loving father to his children, such that we can then enjoy God and the life that he has given us the way that he intends for it to occur. The Proverbs teach the revealed truths of God which are absolutely necessary for the life He intends to work in us. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? How will He do that? The slow work of holiness. You want to run faster? You got to run. (laughs) You want to bench press more? You got to spend some time in the gym. You got to get under the bar, right? So that's, that's what God is saying to us here. That's how the Proverbs work, okay? So I'll give you an example of this, and I think that uh, I I do need to say as well, when we think about the paths, children, that are in the Proverbs, the path of righteousness and the path of the wicked, this is very important. We're not talking about you trying to figure out what the decree of God is. Often when people think about the decision that God places before them, they often think of it in terms of this. What is it that God wants me to do? Right, And when we ask that question, what is it that God wants me to do, we think of that in terms of God's decree. This idea that God intends for me to crack open His secret will so that I will know what He wants me to do and then make that choice. But that isn't how God works. God's decreed will is secret. Only He knows. And He's not telling 
But what the Proverbs present to us is, in fact, a choice, but it's a moral choice. What we see, in fact, the path of righteousness is not a single, as you were, this idea. It is a path that involves a number of lawful choices, right? And the path of wickedness, can you be wicked in more than one way? (laughs) Yes, sure you can. And so the Bible shows to us that God intends for us to learn about the moral imperatives that are revealed in the Word of God so that we can then constrain the ways that we make decisions into the ways of God. I think about Joshua and those Gibeonites. And as you recall, the relationship with the Gibeonites was quite different than God had intended because they didn't ask the Lord, right? Things changed because they didn't appeal to the Word of God. And things in your life, you know, have not gone as you had hoped because you've not appealed to the Word of God. But that isn't the same thing as making a lawful choice in Christ that becomes hard. Often when people make decisions, I hear them say something like, Well, I, that just seems so difficult. It didn't seem right. I sure am glad the apostles and the Lord Jesus didn't make decisions like that. Because you see, they entered into what God had called them to, and it was a very difficult situation. Determining what you will do based on how hard it is, is a very poor way to make decisions. And it is absolutely not that which is revealed in Scripture. God has created this universe to be a moral universe. And so that means that we make decisions based on what pleases the Lord. And we turn away from that which doesn't please the Lord. And the Bible reveals that to us in many ways, of course, including the Proverbs. Now I'd like to give you an example of how this works in the Proverbs. And I'd like to use as an example the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But what we see here, this concept of adultery or sexual immorality is taught in the context of the fabric of creation of human flourishing. This is what we see when we step into the Proverbs. We don't hear uh, something that sounds kind of abrupt regarding the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt. These are, these are very, very important commands. And they bring with them the urgency of our Creator, Sovereign God. Right? But when we, when we begin to really come to understand all of the impact of this, we see that there's far more to this than simply a declaration that God has made. Little children are known to ask, why? 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 All those answers are here in the Proverbs. And so regarding the seventh commandment, again, we could look, for instance, in chapter 9. Verses 17 and 18 of Proverbs. Where the Bible says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This is the way of folly. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is a reference to the seventh commandment. What God is telling Uh, the reader of the Proverbs, as a father would tell his children, is that it won't work out if you go this way. 
The early awakening of romantic love between a man and a woman is warned against in the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. Over 50 verses and 8 chapters in the book of Proverbs address the dangers of immoral sexual relationships. Considering the the breathtaking prevalence of pornography among the so-called church, it seems clear that many do not take the Word of God seriously in this area. And many have a path of destruction behind them to attest to this fact. When you read the Proverbs, the concept of adultery and sexual immortality is very abrupt. It's uncomfortable when you read it out loud. But I'm persuaded that there's a grand purpose in that because of the dangers of sexual immorality. And we see this in our own day. We see see how horribly destructive sexual immorality is. And so this is nothing less than a declaration of the truths of the seventh commandment given to us in all of its colorful, challenging perversion that we see in the book of Proverbs. Laziness is shown to go hand in hand with poverty, with poverty in chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. So we look over here in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, what you see here may appear to be uh, a slow fall into real biblical laziness, but the result of that is a poverty that is quite abrupt. It's like a robber, right? It's like an armed man. And so we see, again, the warnings of the Scriptures uh, in in their abruptness and in their urgency, and it's important for us to see. But this isn't the only idea that informs the Christian attitude toward work. Because we look over here in Proverbs chapter 21, for instance, in verse 26, and the Bible says, All day long he craves and craves, that is the sluggard, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. <clears throat> you don't hear it much these days, but this is the Protestant work ethic. <laughs> okay? This is the idea behind it, right? It's not only about amassing wealth, it's about giving. It's about giving to people who need it. And so we see that there uh, obviously is a a full-orbed explanation of why we do what we do and how we should create these habits of living faithfully in the book of Proverbs. The book shows that holiness is shown to go hand-in-hand with happiness. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think of our God who has decided to link your happiness to your holiness. Do you like that? I mean, what does that mean for you? 
He's decided to link your moment-by-moment happiness with your pursuit of holiness. I hope that you'll take that to heart. I hope that that will be to you a great urgency. Just like when you discover that you're weak or slow. (laughs) That you need to get faster and stronger. That you need to learn your trade better. Right? This is this is a vocation. This is a trade. This is a skill. We've been called into the guild, if you were, of the redeemed. And we have been given, right, this this skill set that God has called us to and enabled us to enter into fully. And to triumph and to triumph in Christ. If you undervalue holiness, then you'll never have true joy. God's Word makes it clear that they're linked together. They have a cause and effect relationship. The Proverbs clearly show that the process of cultivating holiness, which includes living transparent lives and true fellowship with God's people, is that which brings joy. This is the triumph of faith. And what we find is that as we walk with the Lord we develop more deeply a desire and an affection and a taste for the things of holiness. Have you noticed that as you walk with the Lord? As one who's redeemed, have you noticed that the more you enter into the sweet promises of God, the more you take Him at His Word, the more you take in the truths of Scripture, the more you lean into the words of God, do you not find that you love Him more deeply and are also more joyful in your relationships with others. This concept is is seen everywhere in our death culture. Everyone wants to be happy, and they are persuaded that money, that other things, sex, drink, good food, fancy homes, is going to help them. But we know that isn't true. It's proverbial in our day. We recognize that those people that long after those things see how empty their lives really are. The rich and famous of our society spend their evenings alone watching television and playing video games. Woohoo. That's not the kind of life that God has created us for? How could that ever be described as thriving? How could that ever be described as real living? Right? And that's what God gives us here in the Scriptures. Justification by faith is accomplished by God alone. Happiness in this life for you will be a reflection of your earnest attention to holiness and your enjoyment of your adoption into God's family as a fruit of your attachment to Christ. The level of earnestness you bring into the intention of God to work in you, the perfection of Christ, will most certainly be directly reflected in your attitude, in your demeanor, in your countenance, in your love for others, in your kindness. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this, Make every effort. Make every effort. The subject matter that the Apostle Peter was talking about was the effort of living a holy life and of being useful in the hands of a sweet, loving, fatherly God. He says, make every effort. 
<clears throat> so how are you doing with that? <clears throat> you might want to get a, <clears throat> a calendar. <clears throat> the old Puritans had a reputation for taking account of every minute. I'm not recommending that you start that way, but you might be surprised. Some of you are already on to the idea of screen time. But is there an urgency? Do you have an urgency about being happy? Do you want to be happy? I want to be happy, and I want you to be happy. Our God has decided of Himself, without asking, that our happiness is going to be directly attached to our holiness. It doesn't work any other way. It doesn't work any other way. You can try, but we have before us a death culture that day after day after day shows us that it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. How many times must we see that it doesn't work, right? It's like Marxism. It doesn't work. Well, we'll try it this way. It doesn't work. Well, wait until we have all these ideals. It doesn't work. It will not work. It's godless. It's a rejection of God. God is wooing us. Will we follow? I think a reasonable, perhaps even summary of the entire book of Proverbs is in Proverbs 23, verse 26, where the Bible says this, My son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. My son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. Parents, do you have your children's heart? You know whether you do or not. You can tell. Do I have your heart? Can you learn from me as one who is learning from Christ? Are you, as a parent, able? Have you created the kind of environment and relationship in which your children can actually listen to you and they can receive truth from you? It will not occur for an angry man. It will not occur for a screaming mother. It it, it matters what this vessel is that is delivering the spiritual payload. It matters greatly. And this is the structure of the book of Proverbs. Again, the structure and form of Proverbs, the structure and form of how we learn the ways of God such that we can be joyful in Christ and truly triumph in the Lord and commend the gospel is that of an affectionate father to his children. This is the idea. Now, I'm not talking about being soft. Because if you get that impression from what I'm saying, then I've done a very poor job of describing this. But what I am talking about is the recognition that what we say, how we say it, this relation is vital. And we're inclined to push off the relation to the margins and focus on content. Yes, content is important, but every single one of us has heard hundreds, if not thousands of things from people that we cannot receive from because we have no relationship with them. 
Whatever it is they say may be absolutely glorious and angelic, but we cannot receive it from them because we have destroyed or have never spent the time to create a relationship with them. The same is true in our own families and certainly in our church. God is wooing us. Will we follow? I was never so shocked as to read some of the leadership principles of a Marine general now retired. I was never so shocked as to see that one of the greatest principles that he wished he had learned early on was that of affection. That of affection. How does it work in a relationship? How does it work amongst a team that is doing very difficult, challenging, death-defying things? What is the necessity of affection, not only in the midst of the people on the team or in the unit, but also from the leaders down, right? It's this idea of affection. If I were to tell you who said this, you would be absolutely shocked. Because here we have one who has a reputation for being quite rigid, certainly manly. But he says this that we see again revealed in the Scriptures. God is wooing us. And he does use this method by which to call us to himself. We are familiar with the term irresistible grace. It gives one the impression of kicking and screaming, perhaps. But you see, this is a wonderful example of the way that God woos us because we see that when God gives us life, we come to Him willingly. He changes our hearts. He woos us to Himself. We don't even know what happened. And here we are following the Lord. Wisdom has some synonyms, understanding, insight, also defined as skill, especially the skill to survive. But we know that God has given us not only this to survive, but to thrive in this sinful world. If you know anything about the Bible, we know this. It was written for a sinful world. It was written for sinful people to live in a sinful world. Let's see how this works by looking at the third proverb. My son, do not forget my teaching. Again, the affectionate call here. My son. My son. Obviously, this applies to girls as well. Okay, absolutely. You can embrace this. This is, this is again, a loving father to his children. Are we God's child? A loving father to his children. And what does he say? He says, he says, forget not my teaching. Relatively important idea, Right? Is it possible that we have taken in much instruction that we have forgotten? Has that instruction done you any good? Perhaps it did at the time, but it's not doing you any good right now because you forgot it. So one of the most important elements to this instruction that God gives us is that we've got to remember it. 
So the question for us is, what are we doing to help us remember the Word of God? I have a brother who's challenging me to memorize some Scripture. That's certainly one way to not forget the words of God, right? Forget not my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now that's interesting wording. Let your heart keep my commandments. What is the heart? Well, biblically, the heart is all the non-physical. It's what makes us who we are. It involves our will, our volition, our desire, our affections, all of these things. Forget not my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments, my teaching. That brings up an interesting point, and that's the idea of teachableness. Teachableness. I draw your attention to Proverbs 18, verse 2. Proverbs 18, 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. The question for you is are you teachable? Are you teachable? I encounter a good number of people that are not teachable. They will not hear. They don't have to be teachable because they know everything. There's nothing else to learn. Right? And so... And so God calls us, and we see even in the Proverbs, we understand what it is to be, what it is, uh, uh, to be a wise person. What does that mean? Does a wise person know a lot of stuff? It really has more to do with what they're doing now. A wise person is always learning, right? A wise person is always learning. And that's what we see in the Proverbs. I'd far rather see a man who's an earnest learner of the things of God come into leadership in Christ's church than one has supposed educational credentials and isn't teachable. When humans rise to perfection in the new heavens and the new earth, they'll still have have an earnest wonder to learn more of their Savior. You need to know this about heaven. There are not any smug know-it-alls in heaven. They're not there. Everybody in heaven is going to delight themselves that there's so much to take in of the character and the sweetness of God and of the people that He has put around us in heaven. When you get to heaven, there'll be much to learn. So if you don't like learning down here, get ready. Get ready, right? Enjoy enjoy learning. That's what the Bible says. It says, let your heart keep my commandments. This certainly is not unlike Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This idea uh, of taking them into your heart. The Bible says right here in verse 2, length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. 
What's the Bible saying here? The Proverbs are given to us, right, in terms of characterological habits that God calls us to develop, and we see the means by which God will keep His promises to us. Is, is the Lord promising to us a flourishing physical life here, associated with holiness? Yeah, I think there's something to this. Have you ever noticed that stress can make you physically ill? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that things that you think and things that you believe impact your own body? I mean, it goes on in these eight verses to say, in verse 8, it will be healing to your spirit. No, it will be healing to your flesh. And refreshment to your bones. We recognize the beauty of holiness as applied to our spirit, right? And we know that we're two-part beings, body and spirit. What I'm not promising here, nor is the Lord promising to you a perfect health, but what I am saying is that the Bible is referring here to as we walk in holiness, we will see physical aspects of that that are very good for us, right? We've all seen the haggard, careworn individual that seems like they're much older than they really are. Right? Maybe I look like that. I don't know. But nonetheless, we see that, again, this is, this is a physical sort of uh, you know, response to the ways that we have taken in the spiritual truths of God. Consider a life of earnestly chasing your worldly dreams. The Proverbs would say that doesn't end well. And it's not just a bad spiritual ending, right? It's a bad physical ending. You don't think adultery and drugs and staying up late and all this kind of stuff, you don't think that takes a physical toll on you? Right? This is the physical flourishing that God intends to keep us in as we walk in His ways revealed to us here in the book of Proverbs. Now consider a life flourishing, lively, life. This is what God presents to us here. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. The Bible says in verse 3, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Steadfast love. Now, I don't really think it's really that great to bring different languages into the sermon here, but I'd like to do this one time uh, just because I think it will help you remember this. Okay? Steadfast love. Um, it can also be translated mercy or kindness. The, 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 uh, the Hebrew word here is hesed. Can you say that? Hesed. Hesed. You might perhaps remember that a little bit longer now when you think of this really weird word, right, that you heard, is this concept of steadfast love. It's, it's relational glue that holds us together. The reality is, is that the Lord Jesus told us that they will know us by what? By the cars we drive. Is that right? Oh, no, that's not it. Let's see. Uh, they will know us by the rigidity 
of our theology. Is that right? No? Somebody help me out here. They will know us by our by our love. Thank you. Appreciate that. They will know us by our love. This concept of hesed. It's translated in the New Testament, agape. We're familiar with this word, right? We understand a little bit about this word, and this is, this is how we, as God's people here at Providence Reformed Baptist Church, we must cultivate this idea. And this, of course, we receive from the Father in heaven. This certainly would describe the way that the Trinity loves one another, right? As an example to us here, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. This is an interesting way to say it, though, isn't it? Kind of like uh, the old minister that uh, did the marriage for a couple and he said, don't stop loving her. And you're like, well, what? What do you mean? Man, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Don't stop loving her. Actively. It's not a state of things. Right? It's a constant giving. If we know anything about love, we know it's giving. Right? And the Lord Jesus Himself said this. He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's an interesting quote that doesn't show up in the Gospels. It shows up in the book of Acts. And you ought to make you ask the question, well, I wonder what else Jesus said that I didn't hear, that I don't know. And you'll find out in heaven, perhaps, other things that He said that it was decided that we might not know. Who we love shapes who we are. The proverb shows us the sweetness of living in accordance with the true love of God. This is why we're warned in the third chapter, right here, chapter 3, verse 31. Do not envy a man of violence. That's an interesting place to put this declaration do not envy a man of violence does that have anything to do with your life today men who are your heroes ladies do you uh, is it possible that you might envy a man of violence I'm going to step on some toes here, okay? Do you think that playing violent games has no effect on your soul? Do you think that? Do you think that that isn't an expression of envying violence? What happens to all that information? What happens to the thrust of your desire in the moment. Right? This is just this is just what appears to be a casual off the cuff comment in the book of Proverbs in chapter 3. I'm just reading the Bible's all I'm doing. Okay. Biblical spiritual depth must be present. Now, let's look here. Chapter 3 
The Bible says, verse 3, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Now that should remind you a little bit about Deuteronomy chapter 6, but we think about this binding around the neck. What is that about? Well, it really is about two things, I'm persuaded. One is this idea of a signet, of a representation of authority, the authority of God, the one that owns us, the one that's purchased us, right? The signet, perhaps not terribly unlike uh, when Pharaoh gives to Joseph a ring, right? Um, this signet, this idea. But also, it's around the neck, and we, we have an interesting thing that we do in our own culture, although I don't see any here today. Uh, it's this lanyard thing around your neck, you know what I'm saying, with like an ID card, and you know some ladies like strap their wallet on that and stuff. I mean, it's just you see all kinds of stuff in there. So there is also a certain accessibility uh, that we see here with the binding around the neck and this idea. And I would draw your attention to dear Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when he's in the doubting castle with giant despair. Do you know where I'm at there in Pilgrim's Progress? So there's Christian, he's in doubting castle with giant despair and he is absolutely beyond his wits. He doesn't know what to do. Who's his companion at this point? Is it faithful or is it hopeful? You'll want to say hopeful in this case. And so hopeful is in there and he doesn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden what happens? Christian says, wait a minute! I've got a key around my neck. And it's called the key of promise. And it will unlock any gate in this castle. And so they unlock the gates and they walk out the door. The key of promise. Certainly Bunyan was drawing our attention to a number of things, not least of which is right here in Proverbs chapter 3. In not forgetting but also binding the truths of God around our neck, in particular, this urgency of steadfast love and faithfulness. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The idea here is an expression of blood earnestness. Children, you are serious about a few things, right? Don't mess with my... whatever it is, right? Pretty serious. Brother, sister touches that stuff, man, it's, it's like a cat fight, right? Bad news. But let's talk about blood earnest urgency here. And that's described as writing on the tablet of your heart. This is a big deal. And that's what's being spoken of here in the book of Proverbs. The Bible goes on and says, Favor and good success in the sight of man will be gained as we look here. In verse 4, this is a promise to us, again, as we walk in His ways, and we want to think of this not only in terms of taking in the truths of God, but also in our own repentance. The reality is, we've already discussed this, when we repent, we tend to repent of acts of sin, right? Yeah, there are acts of sin, for sure. But we also know that the acts of sin are the fruit of a sinful habit. And the Proverbs introduce us 
or at least reveal more fully to us this idea of creating holy and biblical habits, right? This idea that in order to have the fruit of holiness, I have to have habits of holiness. When I take holiness simply as these individual unconnected acts of holiness, then I'm not yet creating the habits that create the fruit of holiness. And that's what Proverbs wants for us to understand. The righteousness of justification is imputed and received by faith. Living faithfully in accordance with the Word of God is also received by faith, but it involves the sweating work of keeping God's ways in the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Your own understanding is inherently unstable. This concept, this thing that we say to one another occasionally, hold fast, uh, this holding fast, hopefully will draw your attention to this idea that I'm looking for something that's stable. Your understanding is not stable. It's like holding on to a fence post that's about to fall over. Right? So this is an important idea that we want to grasp. We have healing and refreshment promised here in verse 8. Certainly, the implication is that we are spiritual receivers of God's redemption as we enter into these things. Let us pray.